We're in our study in 1 Peter. We're talking about our, our response in suffering. And that's really a good question. How do we respond to suffering? We've been talking about it all through 1 Peter. Now, I took a shot a few, I think about a month ago, I took a shot and I said how my, my struggles and my, my dislike of golfing, and I, I teased, I talked about that and I teased a little bit, and uh, I've been getting teased by a lot of different uh, people over the month. I, I really had to uh, take a barrage because there's a lot of golfers out there. And, uh, and uh, we won't mention them by name, but uh, Mikey's pretty good. But, uh, so I'm not going to go play with him. But, uh, <laughs> or his brothers. They're pretty competitive. I'm competitive too, but I'm competitive like save my ball from going in the water. And, uh, and uh, I have to watch it. But you know, God has a sense of humor as we talk about our response in suffering. Because this was kind of my day the last couple days was... That guy right there. All he wanted to do was golf. And uh, my only salvation was is that he called it hockey. So um, I want to go play hockey. And so we would go to play the stick hockey game. And he goes, no. And he'd point to that. And I was like, that's not hockey. That's, that's putt-putt golf. And, and uh, he goes, I want to play, play that. So, so we went and played a lot of miniature golf. And so uh, we might have a golfer on our hands. God's sense of humor for my disdain for golf. <laughs> so anyway, but let's get right back into our topic. Enough of that. But God is, is good, and he deals with a lot. The point of our passage this morning as we read is I want you to understand this. As we look at suffering, when we think about suffering, what does God expect? What does he want from us as believers? Because we're dealing with suffering all around us. And this is the point. When naming the name of Christ, when we say that we're a Christian, when we say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, I believe he died for me, I believe that I owe everything to him because he died for my sin, he took my place, I deserve to die, but he took my place. And the point when we talk about suffering in our text that we're about ready to pray and read is this. When naming the name of Christ, it is painful and not abnormal to suffer. It is both painful and it's not abnormal. We shouldn't be shocked. Oh my goodness, I'm suffering. That's not what we should expect. We should actually be the opposite. We should expect it. It shouldn't be something that's abnormal. Like when you walk out into your field and you find cow manure. If you have cows, you should not be shocked when you step in it, right? Now, if you're running around barefoot, that's a little shocking, right? But you shouldn't be surprised. If we name the name of Christ and we're walking in this world in which we don't belong, we should not be surprised when we step in it. And I'm talking about suffering. So as we prepare to read our text in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 9, and we ask this question, how should the believer respond to suffering? Would you, as we read this and as we pray, that you'd ask God to answer that question from his word to your heart this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word. Lord, not through my lips, 
not through my heart, but through your will. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us and remove distractions, Lord, and help us to understand your will when it comes to our response to the suffering that we face in this world. And Lord, would you be glorified? Would you be honored? In your name we pray. Amen. Verse 12 and following, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials, or in your translation, some of you might be painful trials, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a, as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I hope that you see this point played out in our text this morning. The word suffering, by the way, as it, and all of its derivatives are used over 21 times in 1 Peter. Do you think that Peter is, and God is getting our attention about suffering? 21 times. Peter starts in the very beginning by reminding that we, what we have in Christ so that way we'd have the right focus when we enter suffering. That we have an inheritance in Christ. That he died for us. That he gave us life. He wants to change our focus. The point is what we have, not what we feel. The point is what we have in Christ, not what we feel during painful suffering or persecution. Peter then reminds us that suffering should not affect our relationships with unbelievers. Just because you're suffering, just because things are hard, doesn't mean that our testimony should change before people who don't put their faith and trust in Christ. Peter then clearly shifts, and we talked about this, but he clearly talks about our suffering should not affect our relationships within church. We got, well, got through chapter 2 and chapter 3, all dealing with relationships. Peter then draws our attention back to Christ and says, when you're in suffering, Jesus Christ is our pattern, which we celebrated this morning. Peter has a lot to say about suffering. The Holy Spirit had a lot to tell us and to the church about suffering. Nero was having Christians covered with tar and lit on fire alive during the time 
when God gave this message. The church at that time needed to hear a message about suffering. We look outside our walls today and see all that is going on in our society. And today our church needs to hear a lot about suffering. We need to understand how to respond to it. We should, how should we respond to being mocked by our friends, by our co-workers? How should we be, respond when our families don't understand us? I still, it just, I laugh because my, my adoptive dad, they, who, who ridiculed me and persecuted me growing up, and he looked at me and laughed at me because I was a Christian, and, and when I was going to study to be a pastor, he said, you're, you're a loser, and I said, I just looked at him and I said, well, why would you say that? And he goes, you're not going to amount to anything. And I just, I, my second grade teacher told me that too, no offense. <laughs> told me, I'd never read in public. That's what she said. I still struggle with reading, by the way, but God's word is much easier to read than to read another book. But my adoptive daddy goes, he comes to me and he goes, you have a new car, where'd that come from? I talked to him just a little while ago and mentioned to him about the farm that we have and the five acres and the house. And he goes, how in the world could you afford that? And I said, I have a father who's in heaven who sustains me. And he just shakes his head. He says, I don't get it. And he just, and I said, it's God takes care of me. I trust God and he is providing. I put my faith in him. He goes, I don't understand Literally, he says that to me. After I tell him the answer, he goes, that just does not make sense to me. How do we respond to that kind of stuff? You know, it's good to remember. Remember Peter, by the way, when Peter began to be persecuted? Right? What did he do? He denied Christ. Right? The cock crowed. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Christ told him that after he returned from denying Christ, Peter looked at him, and he says, now you must strengthen the brothers. Isn't that amazing? Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 32. He said, now Peter, you know what it is to suffer persecution and fail. Now I want you to go strengthen the brothers. That's pretty encouraging to think where Peter had come from and this is God's tool to encourage the church about how to deal with suffering. How should the believer respond to suffering? And that is, number one, Christians should not be surprised at suffering for Christ. Dear brothers, verse 12, he says, don't be surprised. Look, our mindset changes when we expect something to happen. When we know it's going to happen, we respond differently. You guys, we got to stop reacting. We got to stop going ah, when things bad things happen, and say, you know what? I God told me it was going to happen. I was going to face suffering. See, the difference is, is God doesn't want us to react the way the world reacts. He wants us to respond based on what we know is true. And we know what Christ went through. He suffered and bled, and died, and he rose again. He conquered death. He faced suffering, rejoicing, because he knew the outcome. Peter, in chapter 1, reminded us what the outcome was, that we have an inheritance that's kept by God for us, by his power. 
When things go wrong in our lives and, and we seem powerless, that's okay because guess what? God's power remains. I mean, it's amazing how many believers are shocked when bad things happen. But that we don't need to be that way. During Christ's ministry, it's amazing. If you go back and look in through the Gospels, Jesus reminded his disciples often, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world doesn't, shouldn't get why you're different. That's why, it, that's why it struggles. That's why my dad struggles with understanding my life. He doesn't get it. Christ said, if you belong to the world, it would love you. But since you do not belong to the world, that's why it hates you. Listen again what Paul tells Timothy. Timothy is struggling. He worries about what people are saying. The church is struggling. The church is fighting against him. Timothy's ready to step out of the ministry. Second Timothy, Paul reminds our dear young pastor, he says in verse 12, chapter 3, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If you're choosing to live godly, you will be persecuted. There's some of our, our men in this room that are living in the world. They're serving our community in the world, and I guarantee they will face persecution because of the name of Christ. We need to pray for them. I tell them often, I'm praying for you. Because you will face persecution. And I don't want them to fold. I want the name of Christ to remain high. A lot of times in our life, you are learning to be godly and you face persecution. And guess what goes out the window? Living a godly life. It's easy to stop living a godly life because you don't want to face the persecution. If you aren't facing persecution for Christ, you might want to ask yourself where your life is with Christ. Don't run from persecution. Face it head on because there's blessings to come and we're going to get there. Number two. Christians should rejoice in suffering for Christ. You should rejoice. Believers should respond with rejoicing. Remember Philippians 4.4? Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, man, don't you think he included that and just rejoice always? But Paul knew that we're dumb. We need to be reminded twice. Right? I always tell my kids, do this. Now, what did I say? Now, go and do it. <laughs> if I can get them to repeat it twice to me, the task might get done. <laughs> Paul is trying to prove a point. We need to rejoice. Think about in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas. Why did Paul say rejoice? Paul and Silas, they were doing what was right. They were preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 16. And what did they do? They got thrown into prison because of the name of Christ. And what do they do? They weren't thrown in the prison with cable and you know, food every three, day, three times. They were thrown in a prison and with rats and maggots and bugs and feces and junk. 
That's the prison that they were thrown into. Most likely some kind of a cave system. Not like what we think today. Right? And what do they do? They start singing. Praising God. Rejoicing in God, not their circumstances. Isn't that amazing? How, how, we should rejoice. And what did it do? God shook the place and let them walk out. But remember what happened because of that? Because of their rejoicing in Christ, the, the, the prison guard came to faith and his whole family. Unbelievers are watching us. What are we going to do when we suffer? Paul gives us reasons, by the way, in the text here. We're going to go through them quickly. Why should we rejoice? Because it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. It's a, we should rejoice that you participate in his sufferings. Philippians 1, verses 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. It has been granted to us to suffer. Uh, Philippians 3, 10 through 11, I want uh, to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I want to I have in common with Christ what he went through, Paul says. Believers can rejoice because we will be rewarded at the second coming. That's what he's saying in the end of verse 13. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When Christ comes back and all of his glory is revealed, we will be rewarded for our suffering. When, when God said to, that, that Jesus humbled himself in Philippians 2, and he humbled himself, and he became a servant, and he even became a servant or a slave to the Father's will to the point of death, death on the cross, what did God do? He said he raised him up and exalted his name, that his name would be above all names, that every knee one day will have to bow. Guys, our suffering is temporal. It's a short time. It may feel hard right now. But you know what? It's not the end. One day God is going to come back and we will rejoice and he will exalt us to where he wants us to be in glory with him forever. I like Revelations twenty-two, twelve. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, he says. Those are his words. Revelations 22, 12. Behold, I am coming. That either puts excitement in your life or dread because you're not ready to meet the Savior. But look, he says, my reward is coming with me. It is amazing to think about that. Not only that, but you see at the end there, the believer can rejoice because the Spirit of God rests on us during trials. When we rejoice... The Spirit of God rests on us. Think about Stephen. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? He was being stoned, right? And what it says, he had a countenance of an angel. How many people do you know that are getting pelted by rocks, like softball-sized rocks, that look like an angel? I don't know very many. I've been hit by rocks. I guarantee I did not look like an angel. I turned... <laughs> I was thinking devilish thoughts. <laughs> I was like, where's the next big rock I can throw? <laughs> we were, you know, I was a real boy when I was a little. I played with rocks and clods and, you know, we threw them at each other and darts. It was, I was, 
I was Kedrick. <laughs> God knew what he was doing when we adopted Kedrick. <laughs> but what does that mean that the Spirit of God is resting on us? It means we become empowered by his Holy Spirit. Think about it. We, we become empowered by his Spirit. Not only that, but it means that we have intimacy with God. When, when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up to heaven and he had an intimate relationship with God at that very moment. Second Corinthians, Paul was being persecuted and he had an affliction and he was praying that God would remove it and, and God didn't. He said, but my power will come, will come through you in your weakness. It's the same words. When the Spirit of, the, of God's glory rests upon us, it means also relief. That word rest in the text there, by the way, when it says that in verse 14 at the very end, it says, and the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That word rest means to give relief, refreshment, intermission from toil. I've seen it on some people's face when they're going through the worst thing in their life, and yet they look so content. And they're naming the name of Christ. They're rejoicing in Christ. They said, I have nothing else I can do but rejoice in the Lord. He is my strength. And he gives them refreshment during the time when they should be in agony. Now, they'll tell you that things were hard, but they were okay. Because the Spirit of God, they could feel the Spirit of God rest on them. Number three, Christians should properly evaluate their suffering for Christ. If you look at verses 15 through 18, he gives us uh, some things to think about when we suffer. So not only should we not be surprised and we should rejoice, and he gave us why we should rejoice, but also we should evaluate. We should ask ourselves some questions. And I don't think I put the questions in your notes, but here are some, here are some questions. Are these things because of my sin or is it because of my righteousness? God says we should suffer for righteousness, not for sin. It's good to self-evaluate. We should ask ourselves, am I doing it because I'm meddling? Did you notice that? <laughs> Look at verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or even as a meddler. And, and that's the thing is why are you suffering? Is it self-made? Or is it because you're naming the name of Christ and following Christ? We need to make it our ambition to name the name of Christ. We need to ask ourselves, are you ashamed? Don't be ashamed of what you're going through. Christ went through it. He suffered for our sake, that we might have life. Question uh, the, number three, how can I glorify the name of Christ in the trial? How can I make God bigger in my trial? That should be a question. You should be looking. There's even books out there. I know uh, John Piper, I don't ascribe to all of his theology, but he, say, he wrote a very good book. It says, how can, how can I glorify Christ in my cancer? Right? And he, he wanted Christ to be bigger than his cancer. He wanted to name the name of Christ. He didn't want cancer to be his name. He didn't want to be a cancer survivor. He wanted to be a, a Christ follower and rejoicer. I can't remember the exact quote he put, but 
How can I glorify the name? The next question is, how can I have an eternal perspective in, in looking at my trial? Now, this is kind of confusing, but in the end of verse 17 and 18, he says, look, Peter makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God allows intense hardship to happen to us as Christians, to suffer, to get rid of sin, because really God is bringing us through suffering and pain to remove sin from our life, to present us to Christ as holy and blameless. How much more harsh will God be at the final judgment for those who don't believe? Do we have that eternal perspective? Or are we having a now perspective in our trial? By the way, did you notice that a lot of translations say fiery trial? A lot of the believers during that time were on fire, literally. Being lit on fire. Often Christians, as Christians, we're so short-sighted and we don't see things from God's perspective. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us how to have it from his perspective. Peter is saying that we should evaluate our trials in view of God's eternal judgment on the world for sin. We shouldn't worry about whether we're persecuted and the world is not because they will get their comeuppance. And it's actually sad. We want them to know Christ. He allows the believer to go through hardship in order to make them holy and pure, but one day judgment will happen to the lost. His final payment will not be discipline. It's going to be punishment. Number four, how should we respond? Christians must entrust themselves to God while suffering for Christ. Do you know what the word entrust means? It means to deposit Something to deposit, to, to invest in. Literally, God is saying here that how should we respond to trials? Are you depositing your life, investing your life in the name of Christ? Are you depositing it in God's bank? That is how God wants us to respond. Remember chapter 1? We have an inheritance. This is the second time he reminds us that the bank of God, that our inheritance is being kept for us. When you invest your life in the Lord, he keeps the investment secure to give us at the day when he comes back and, re and we return home with him. That's the question you should ask yourself. Have you invested your life in Christ? I think a lot of people have invested a part of their life with Christ, right? How many of us invest our whole salary in the stock market? And how many of us invest all our earnings into the bank to save for later? No, we do parts, right? The sad thing is, is we do that as Christians sometimes. We say, you know what, I'm going to invest a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church I'm going to go to a Bible study, but I'm just going to, that's about as far as my investment goes for the Lord. I'm not going to share Christ. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself out there because I'm going to get persecuted if I do. How are we supposed to respond to suffering? He says, entrust yourself to him. By the way, why would we want to invest ourselves in this world? This is where my dad doesn't get it. 
My dad thinks if, if he invests himself, he was reading, we were reading Luke together one time, and he looked at me and says, I can't do this Christ thing because if I do, I'll have to give up all my millions. He had millions of dollars at the time. A few years later, guess what happened? You remember the great downturn? The first one that happened about, I don't know, 15 years ago, or I don't remember how long ago. A lot of people lost a lot of money in, in investments. He did. He lost, almost, he lost all the millions he had. Now he's since gained it all back because his God is money. But, you know, here's the thing. 1 John chapter 2 tells us, verse 17, the world and its desires uh, and it will pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The investment, when we invest our life with God, it will endure everything and it has the most reward in the end. When the world system is passing away, those who do God's will will remain. Have you entrusted your life to the Lord? I'm not asking if you're saved. I'm asking, are you investing in God? I don't, when I try to be raising my kids, I'm like, guys, you, you can do lots of great things with your life. But if you're not investing in God first, all that other stuff is, is pointless. If you want to be a doctor, be the best doctor for the Lord. I keep trying to get one to be a vet, but I, I think that they should. I got a couple of them that could be vets. I'm try, I kept trying to give them over to Kevin, but they're too shy. <laughs> I say, do you want to go to the vet with me with our, with our calf? No. <laughs> I, but I want them to be the best vet for God. I want them to be the best missionary for God. I don't want them to just be a missionary. I want them to invest their life in God. See, you can be a missionary and not invest your life with God. You can be a pastor and not invest your life in God. I've seen a lot of pastors who've walked away from ministry and said it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. They couldn't endure the suffering. There's a lot of farmers that can't be farmers. <laughs> they have big aspirations. I'm reminding myself that every day when I get up to take care of animals. <laughs> and my wife's teasing me. She's like, you only do that three times a week. <laughs> I'm not a real farmer. <laughs> just talk to the Ericsons. <laughs> Are you investing your life in the Lord? That's all that matters. Let's pray. Lord, I pray with all my heart that we would respond the way the text tells us to respond, that we would trust you with our life, that we would stop trusting in what we can do, but lay our life before you. Romans chapter 12, that we would give our life as a living sacrifice, entrusting our life as an investment in you, that you want to invest in us, that you want to change us from suffering to glory and give us the rewards of our suffering. May, Lord, we invest our life in you. And, Lord, if someone here is not doing that, that they feel convicted in their heart from your words, Lord, that you would encourage them, not discourage them, but encourage them to say, you know what, I'm going to take my steps to keep investing my life in you and all that I do. That, Lord, that they would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength so they can love 
their neighbor as themselves. That they'll be useful in the world because of their love for you. May we be a church of investing lives to the Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.